Hi, Scott. Good to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a professor at the University of Michigan and at the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I do work on both diversity and the use of modeling to understand social problems. So I come at diversity in sort of an interesting way in that I focus on how diversity allows us to sort of find better solutions to complex problems. Hmm. So um, before we get into all that, like, could you please yeah. share with our listeners, like, how you got into the topic and why were you, uh, are you fascinated by it in the first place? So uh, were you fascinated by it, like, in your teenage years? So, yeah, could you please speak to that? <clears throat> Actually, not at all. So I was, um, <laughs> you know, I'm from a very... Uh, I'm from a very rural area in Michigan, you know, a small town, so there wasn't a lot of diversity there. And then I went to the University of Michigan, where I now teach as an undergraduate. And I think, you know, I was intrigued by the diversity there. I mean, seeing people from different countries, different religions, different races, that sort of stuff. But I was a mathematician, and I was trained in doing mathematics. And then I went and got a PhD and did game theory. And then I was teaching out at Caltech, you know, which is a game very... Game theory on, like... Um, like and like, no, on how, like, you know, sort of mathematical economics, like strategic okay. interactions, like how do firms and countries behave in strategic interactions. So the study of strategic behavior mm. and that sort of research focuses on like really smart people optimizing, given what the other person's doing. Like imagine people playing chess or engaged in a military dispute. Like how do you optimize or a political election or two firms competing? You know, how does how does one optimize given what the other's doing? Hmm. And then during that time, I got interested in this field called complex systems, which sort of says, look, that's all nice to think about, but the world is way too complex for anybody to optimize. So instead, what we do is we kind of do the best we can. And in studying complex systems, so things like ecosystems are complex systems, the economies are the complex systems, society generally is a complex system. Hmm. One of the things that sort of pops out of that analysis is that diversity, which typically we think of as in sort of like oh, isn't it wonderful, we should be inclusive sort of views, ends up being the things that make these systems robust, you know, able to withstand sort of shocks, and also really innovative. So if you talk to someone in ecology, they'll be like, oh, you want all these different species of birds and all these different species of ants because they enable the ecosystem to respond. Mm. But people in economics and people in political science and people in sociology often thought of diversity as, you know, it's just oh, it's wonderful and we should appreciate each other, but it wasn't making the economy, you know, but it wasn't making things better. And I'm like, wait a minute. I think it's actually making things better. And so, and if you think about it, like if, if you're in Berlin, I was just um, in London and I just got back from cool. D.C. No, and like these international cities are just spectacular. Why? Because diversity. I mean, like it's, it's great to go to London and not be eating like, you know, cheese baskets, and brown bread, you know, it's just <laughs> spectacular, right? No, and the, the theater, the music, the food, the products, the ideas, you know, they're, um, it's, it's amazing what diversity brings us. And at the same time, when you look at the challenges we have in front of us, like, you know, climate change and things like that, right, um, diversity is going to be the lever on which we stand to solve those problems. So um, you weren't like interested in all those things as a kid or teenager. You were all you always had like a mathematician uh, background. But um, yeah. I was, Not you know, enough. I was a kid from a small town, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a narrow existence, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know, I was interested in sports, <clears throat> you know, sports and math, maybe girls a bit, right? <laughs> Got it. So, uh, <laughs> right. yeah. 
So um, what happened then? You, you've uh, finished, like, what did you major in? So <laughs> No, so I majored in, like, math, and, mm. and then I took a lot of English, and then I went to get a PhD in math, and then I discovered this game theory stuff, and so I got a, ended up getting a PhD in game theory at Northwestern. Very cool. And then, uh, yeah, so it's very cool. No, and it's been, so it's, what's been really fun about it is for someone who's, um, you know, my real skill is probably like, you know, kind of writing simple little mathematical models to be able to spend my life, you know, big chunk of my life out in the world talking about how wonderful our differences are and how that makes us a better world. It's pretty cool. It's a nice, you know, it's better than like talking about cosine. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, tried. yeah. So um, I think game theory is super, super important. And for instance, like understanding stuff like prisoner's dilemma. So um, could you please explain those things for our listeners who aren't familiar with prisoner's dilemma? And um, you could maybe share a few things on game series that also seem to be very important to you. So. Sure. So the, um, in fact, you know, Bob Axelrod, who's uh, this famous wrote this book called The Evolution of Cooperation, which is a famous book on the prisoner's dilemma, is one of my colleagues in Good and Fred's. But the prisoner's dilemma works as this, like this, is that suppose there's two of us and each one of us can take one action. We can be cooperative or we could defect. Right. And by so cooperating, let's suppose that there's, um, you know, a bunch somebody leaves a bunch of like, you know, or two kids, somebody's a bunch of toys on the porch, we could be cooperative and each take like, I could take like half the toys and you could take half the toys or I could defect and I could take like all the toys, right? And then yeah. Like, right? It turns out if you write that game, if we both sort of defect, right? If each one of us defects, then we're worse off. But individually, we're better off if we defect. And so you have this weird thing where the individually best thing to do, which is to defect, right, to take as much as you can, ends up making us both worse off than if we were both to cooperate, right? So where this plays out, it plays out in just so many cases, right? So even yeah. if you think about it, like, and sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. So suppose you're two firms. If I lower my price, then I make more profits. But then if you lower your price, you make less profits and I make less profits. So you'd both be better off having our price be higher, right? Um, it's, it's also one of the things like, suppose that, um, you and I are competing for a job. And so you say, I'm going to get up at six o'clock every morning and show my boss I'm working harder. That's defecting in a way, right? Cause you're working harder. So then I get up at six o'clock in the morning to also show I'm working harder. So we're both getting up at six o'clock in the morning and neither one of us is differentiating. Ourselves, <laughs> right? And so what's so important about this, this very simple game is that, by the way, I love your examples. Yeah. yeah. It really shows it's applicable to so, 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 so many things in life. So no, it's applicable to tons of stuff, but what's, what's so fascinating about it is that, you know, each one of us is doing what appears to be in our self-interest and collectively we're worse off. And so one of the challenges for game theory then is how do you create cooperation? How do you make it so we're not both getting up at six o'clock in the morning? And so the way you do that is there's a bunch of ways you can do it through reputation. Like you have a reputation of being a good person and, you know, you don't want to ruin that. Right. Because even mm -hmm. if you did get the promotion, everybody in the firm would be like, yeah, there's that hardy that jerk that got up at six o'clock in the morning. Right. Or <laughs> the other thing is it's a it's a repeated game. You know, we know this is going to happen time and time again. And we realize, and we sort of think through it. You know, there's a famous movie, The Princess Bride, where um, you sort of think through. I know that you know that I know that you know that I know. Right. And um, so I think that, you know, some of this is just thinking 
thinking through the whole thing a little bit, and then you can get through it. So reputation management, and then also outside punishment. You know, you can have outside people sort of punish. What do you mean by that, like outside punishment? Well, you can just basically have like, you know, the, the firm could say, you know, no, everybody could sort of, other people could say, uh, you know, we're going to fine you, we're going we're gonna to fine you for coming in earlier. We're going to fine a firm for, you, know, mm. you can make it so that you just kind of change the incentive so it no longer makes sense to defect. Yeah. I think quite a few people um, are familiar with, with the prisoner's dilemma, but what are the a few things that you think on game theory are very important to understand? And um, maybe, yeah, you could share with us principles or things that of, of quite a few people might not be aware of. So anything so think, that comes to mind? Yeah, right I know now? there's a bunch of stuff um, from game theory. One is just that, you know, one thing we know from game thing is signaling ends up being very, very important, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about, um, so the idea of signaling is sort of, you may, like, let's think about, like, why you go to college, right? Now, you could say, oh, I go to college in order to learn a lot so that I could then be mm -hmm. better at my job. But there's also some sense in which what you're doing by going to college is you're signaling that um, you're a smart person. Mm -hmm. Because it could be that, like, what you learn at college. So here's an interesting sort of fact, like, very few of the math classes that you take, you actually use in life. Most people aren't using math that often, right? However, if if you're looking at three applicants and one person has taken four math classes and gotten A's in those classes or done well in those classes, that's a signal that they're able to like learn a body of material, right? Mm. And then you know, do exercises. So then if you think about, okay, we're going to get a new machine we have to have somebody who's going to like read the manual for the machine, totally understand it and work the machine. Or we're going to have a new, you know, there's going to be some new protocol for how drugs have to be approved. And somebody's got to follow through that protocol. You just realize this person who mastered this other, you know, thing, that's a signal, master the mathematics, that's a signal they can probably do this other sort of thing. And what's really cool about this idea of signaling is it then goes across to everything, even like, you know, why peacocks have such large feathers, right? Because like, what's going on there? Those feathers aren't doing anything. But what they're doing is they're signaling that the male peacock is incredibly strong and fit because he can, he's so fit, he can like, you know, support these giant feathers. And so a lot of um, behavior that you might see that looks like wasteful or irrational mm. actually ends up, you know, being something that um, signals to other people sort of what your underlying quality is. There's a lot of really cool stuff on signaling. There's also a lot of really cool stuff on coordination. And this relates to the diversity stuff. So, for example, when, when two people your age meet in Berlin, how do they greet each other? Do you like, kiss mom? What do you do? <laughs> we do something like, hey, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, right? Yeah. I mean, you could hug, you could kiss on the cheek, you could fist bump. But you better do the same thing, right? Because if you, like, lean in to kiss me and I go to fist bump, I'm going to, like, punch you in the face and it's not going to be cool. <laughs> so you can view that as a game, right? It's a game where each one, when you meet someone, we've got to greet in some way, right? But it's important yeah. that we do the same thing. But now look across, like, the whole society. Like, do you take your shoes off when you go in someone's house, mm. right? How do you greet someone, right? Do you, um, like, have the television on, right? Do you read your phone at the table? Do you take turns paying for coffee or do you split it? These are just all like little things, but every one of those is a coordination game, right? Well, then when you go to like Japan or Sweden or Germany or New York or London, everybody has solved those things different ways, right? Mm. And so it's easy then to think, whoa, like the French are so different than the Germans, <laughs> right? You know, the Swedes are sort of, 
but it's probably not that they're so different. It's probably just that they've solved, you know, over a couple hundred years, they've solved all these coordination problems in different ways, right? Mm. And so it then allows you, I think one of the beauties of that model, it allows you to just sort of, on the one hand, kind of like laugh at it, enjoy, and just sort of think, isn't it funny that that's how they've um, coordinated on this, yeah. right? And not see it as like some intrinsic genetic difference like there's no gene for fist bumping and there's no gene, you know no no gene for bowing but i think yeah. it's easy to think that like i mean when you're young you think oh the japanese bow when they greet each other you know it's like yeah but you got to do something it's, and then it's you a scientist like, thing probably right yeah no and, and also with bowing that's also a, it's like the peacock feathers like if, if you watch me bow and i'm like an old dude and my back is really sore you're gonna be like that's an old dude. His back is really short. No, you can see. No, you can see. I'm not physically very fit. You think yeah. I can take it? I can take that dude. So, you want to think about. So the weird thing there is that the signaling, the bowing plays two roles. One, it's a coordination game, and it's also then a signal of general health. So is a handshake, right? Because if you shake someone's hand, you can feel that, like you know, are they fit? You know, is their blood flowing through their body? Do they feel weak? All that sort of stuff, right? I think yeah, yeah. I think it's such an important topic to understand, and I think it's fascinating to think about. For instance, I had a couple of examples when people are like posting something outrageous online, and and they are bashing a certain group. It's also status signaling. They right. want to put themselves like above the group, and they want right. to lower the status of a certain other group. And it's basically a lot of status signaling. And um, yeah, it's like. I think like social media is all about status signaling probably at this point. Like people are posting selfies all the time when they are having a great time at the beach or um, taking a vacation or what have you. And um, nobody takes selfies when they're in the hospital. So <laughs> it's also a, a lot of status signaling there. Well, sometimes you do. I mean, I think sometimes I think people take selfies in the hospital, but it's just, but you're right. It's a different kind of person, right? It's, mm. it's, uh, you know, it's hard to, One of my friends just started a podcast called Failure for exactly this reason. No, because it's important, like, for people to know, you know, that you uh, you feel. But like, it's like last year, my son was in a row, rowing race and they took second, right? Barely. Mm. It, it, so we posted a picture of them just looking totally bummed out. <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> no, because it's important for people to know, like, you everybody works really hard and mm. somebody's going to take second. And the thing is, is like, you know, the team that takes second probably work just as hard maybe as the team that took first, right? And so it's important to to not just post, you know, winning, mm -hmm. right? You've got to post other stuff. Yeah, but it's even more than game theory. I mean, one of the things that's like bringing up social media, one of the things I think is so fascinating just generally about sort of like using mathematics. Like I think when you're, you're in high school, you think of, okay, mathematics is like done to like just make our lives horrible or something <laughs> or to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or, or somehow the use of like physics or engineering or something like that, right? <laughs> But in the last 10 years now, there's just all this data about the social world, right? And the mathematics becomes this really important thing for understanding social phenomena we see. So, for example, you know, if you yeah. look at people like, you know, the, the WeWork guy who made all this money or Zuckerberg, you know, Facebook that have all or people who have like five million Twitter followers or something like this. You could think, oh, they have five million Twitter followers because they're amazing. But if you write down a little model where you suddenly realize, like, how does someone decide who to follow? Well, and if this sort of fits the data is you kind of follow people that other people follow. Right. No, because then you have common things to talk about. So if I write down a model where 
a bunch of people start websites, people randomly start following people. And then, you know, you follow people, if more people follow them, you end up with some people with like what they call a long tail distribution. Like mm. you get a handful of people with millions and millions and millions of followers. And people and, with five. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then a lot of people, a lot of people like, you know, five to 500. And so then they've done, you know, so that's what the data looked like. That's what the models look like. And then, you know, people did some experiments where they had it where people tried to figure out like, you know, which music to download. This is called the Music Lab Experiments by Duncan Watson, Matt Sigalnik. Like, which music did you download? And in one case, you couldn't see what music other people downloaded. And you got that everybody kind of got roughly the same amount of downloads. And the other one, you could see what music other people downloaded. And you get this long tail. And so then we learned from that. It's like, whoa, mm. you know success in this sort of social media age like people who are wildly successful probably aren't any better than the people who are moderately successful they're just really freaking lucky and you don't have to you know and yeah and it's like you know it's not like it's really hard to sit down and think what skill set do the kardashians have right um, I mean, Kanye is freakishly talented, right? But the Kardashians don't strike me as freakish. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Kanye definitely is. Yeah, well. Kanye is, and and Kanye. seems to be uh, not not the dumbest person, in my opinion. Like yeah. um, when I hear like other rappers speak, I'm like, oh man, come on. But um, yeah, he seems to be. Yeah, he's got some serious skills. But the thing is, is that so there's the, you know the people who are wild. Some of the people who are wildly successful are gonna. You got to have talent to be successful. But there's a lot of people out there who've got, you know hundreds of thousands of followers who just happen to right place, know, right time. But that, and so why does that, you could say, Oh, that's kind of interesting. But the reason it matters then when you think about, okay, how much tax should Zuckerberg pay? Right. <laughs> no, should Zuckerberg, you know, I mean, should you say, well, you're just a brilliant person. So you should keep your $4 billion or $20 billion. Or should you say, wait a minute, this is a system in which somebody was going to get $4 billion. Right. Mm. You know, it's just kind of how it works. It's kind of like just the way that, you know, there's going to be one firm because you can't have 40 different social media sites. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be one winner. Right. And if there's going to be one winner, then it's not clear that you necessarily were a genius. Right. Yeah. And I, st I think um, understanding power loss and uh, it's very, very important because um, I think. Like, for instance, in wealth creation or like you've mentioned, when somebody has a large following or maybe this is a stupid example because in my early 20s, but um, people also think that, um, yeah, there's like an average distribution, how many women certain people get. But like a few most guys get only a handful of women. And I know, right. for instance, guys who had like hundreds of women who are very famous, have a lot of money, uh, look amazing and so on and so forth. So people tend to think in like those average distribution, like everybody gets a little bit something, but it's actually the opposite. Like a few guys make a killing and some people just uh, most of them are they're quite unsuccessful so and, and one of the examples i give in my book with you know in terms of like entrepreneurs like you know someone who's comes from like who's got a lot of confidence who's got a lot of friends comes from a family that has some money and stuff like that and has a lot of energy you may get to try seven businesses you know yeah. you may start a podcast you may start a health bar company you may start an exercise company you may open a bar you, you may try a ton of stuff and then there's a decent no, and then and because you get to try 10 things, one of those may really take off, right? Mm. And so then you think like, wow, I'm good. So you're asking me like, you know, how did I get in this diversity thing? I mean, let's let's push this back a bit. Like sure. I was really lucky. I mean, I came from a, a wonderful family, not, not that many resources, but a wonderful family. You know, the state of Michigan 
was kind of like the California, the 1940s, <laughs> the auto companies, right? So yeah. the state of Michigan had a ton of money. So the University of Michigan is one of the world's great, typically like ranked one or two in, in public universities in the world, right? It's an amazing place that just happened to be my state school, right? There's 50 states. You know, <laughs> I, I, win the, I win the freaking lottery there, yeah. right? Um, and then I'm teaching at Caltech, which is one of the you know great private schools in the world. So I have tons of time. I've got great staff. I've got, I'm around the most, you know, these Nobel Prize winners and stuff. So I'm around really smart people. So that means I get exposed to all these ideas, like this complexity stuff, this diversity mm. stuff. I get to try and write a whole bunch of papers. And then, like, some throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? <laughs> you know, the fridge, right? Some, yeah. You know, and so the diversity stuff stuck. Other things sort of stuck as well, but the diversity stuff sticks. And then you think, like, oh, wait, not only is this sticking – this is really cool, right? This is really important. And this is a chance for me to like give back in some way and make my life useful. Mm. And, and so I'm very aware to not think like, oh, wow, how did I come up with this? I'm so smart. You know, it's more the case. <laughs> I'm no, it's more such the case. a bright guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's more the case like, wow, <laughs> so lucky because I was put in a position where I got to expose to a lot of stuff, got to try a lot of stuff. And if that happens, something's bound, you're, you know, Something's bound to stick. And so what I tell, you know, my students all the time is I think this gets back to like the game theory signaling thing. A lot of kids go to college and they want to get like, they're worried about their grade point average. Like what grades am I getting? And they're worried about even what college they're going to go into. Like this whole scandal in the U.S. I've thought about like movie stars buying their kids in the University of Southern California and stuff. Let's put this up. Crazy. Crazy, right? But the thing is, I'm, I, I tell kids, look, here's what you want to do. You want to like be acquiring understandings of the world, acquiring tools, perspectives, ways of thinking and stuff like that. And think of yourself mm. as like this, like box of tools and understandings in areas that, you know, literally almost like a toolbox. Like we had a screwdriver, we had a measuring stick. These are things I know how to do, right? Like I know how to shoot movies. I know how to, you know, I mean, like mm. doing this podcast, think of how much you've learned about managing a conversation and how you prep and all that stuff. Like, yeah. Whole set of, like I was stuff. so nervous, like before yeah. every interview, but now I'm like super chill. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like if somebody asked you how you do it, you'd be like, I have no idea. Right. Yeah. It'd be really hard to, you know, cause it's all, it's what we call tacit knowledge. So, mm. so the thing is, so what you, what I tell my undergrads, like you want to develop all these like explicit things and tacit skills and then you know try stuff out maneuver in the world and hopefully you're going to find something where you know you can go out and and do something that has this i think sort of like wonderful match where you actually are pretty good at it and mm. it actually matters and you can feed yourself right you get any of those three things uh, um three things to work out so i feel you know super super fortunate And and I think I think it's so important to always be experimenting, always be trying out new things. For instance, like um, I've also stumbled into this podcasting business and podcasting industry. And one thing I quite uh, quite um, after a few few months, I've realized like you can get such big and famous people on the podcast. And like a couple, if you were to have told me like a couple of years ago, a couple of months ago, you could get somebody with a million followers. 500 employees for instance i had the ceo of freelancer.com on on the show and he's like uh it's like a multi-billion dollar company and um i think also it's hugely luck dependent because i think it's now just a great time to do this uh, kind of format and i think probably in 10 years down the road if you are doing this and try to interview people it probably won't work 
because I think um, there are not so many people who are doing those interview podcasts, so it's quite easy to get big names on. So it's de definitely great to do it. But um, yeah, I think also it's very yeah. It's also like this, you know. It's and there's some of these things are these connections, right? Because you, you know, you you called me and said you want to do this, and I was like, it turns out no, I'm not going to go. But I'd been planning a trip to Berlin. Actually, um, it would have been next week. Now this would be so great, right? I'll do this Berlin podcast, and I'll get some sense of like you know what the youth of Berlin are doing. This will be just so cool. Then the Berlin, and I'm going to London instead. But oh well. Um, the uh, but no, you're right. And I think that the one of the models, like so I wrote this book um, last year called The Model Thinker, which is just this collection of sort of like simple models that you can use to make sense of the world. And one of the one of the really interesting core models is this thing about just what you're talking about is this this tension generally in life between exploring and exploiting, right? Mm. So, I can, so, you know, Darwin talks about this in terms of, you know, like sort of like, you know, selection and variation, right? That, you know, the way ecosystems work is you get genetic variation and then you have selection, survival of the fittest, or actually it's usually more death of the unfit. You know, it's not like I mean, oak trees are survival of the fittest. And but by, by the way, is, is this? Yeah. Uh, I, I've heard a couple of times about this thing about um, exploring and then exploiting. Is it uh, yeah. a term that you came up with, or is no, it like no, oh, no, okay, no, no, okay, no, okay, 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 okay. Well, so okay, it's funny. It. In some ways, it's because I've heard it multiple times. So I just asked. Yeah, me. you can hey. give me credit. No, <laughs> 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 no, it's a, so it sort of goes back to you know, so really a reforming of. Darwin's idea of sort of variation, right, and selection. Okay. I didn't know it's from Darwin, so uh, yeah. The thing is, is that the reason it's slightly different is in in evolution, it's just random, right? You know, it's like each little oak leaf cluster is different, or like my sons came out, and I'm like, wow, they're both like taller and better looking than me, sort of thing, right? You know, so it's just <laughs> what you hope for, right? You know, um, but the um, in with you or me. The, the reason we say explore, exploit is that like it's it's driven by you in some way. You're actually exploring. So you're not like randomly like when you're trying to figure out like what's my look going to be. Yeah. Right. Like um, you don't put on random clothes. No. <laughs> you, know, you get a lot of feedback. You get selection against it right away. Like, yeah. Look, don't <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, By the way, of, I love this conversation. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was in. Uh, it was funny, be, and and so I was in uh, Silicon Valley. Oh, this was like two months ago. And every single like old dude my age, like you know, fifty six. Every single one was wearing pants with cuffs at the bottom that had like a print. You know, it's like mm -hmm. jeans, and then they're cuffed and had like paisley or you know some you know it's like ah, colored. Okay, got it. it. It's just like what old white guys wear now to be cool, I guess. <laughs> And, and I um, think those jeans are quite expensive, also. Yeah, that's the yeah. whole point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can, jeans, right? I can <laughs> buy like five hundred US dollar jeans. So, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. And so I was in. Um, but so the thing is, when you think about, okay, I've got a like. I just moved from our arts and sciences school to our business school um, because we, my youngest son just started art school, so he's out of the house and I had more time, and I wanted to sort of um, just be more in the world in a way. But like in I'm a professor in like a college, I can wear like old khaki pants and cover myself in chalk and you know <laughs> look up look right. But in a business school you kinda of gotta be crisper. And so as I'm trying to like explore, like, okay, you know, what do I what do I wanna look like if I wanna look like hip, successful businessman? It's like I want pants with those little cuffs on the bottom, sort of thing. So we were in London and there was a pair for not that much, like eighty bucks or something. So like, okay. Um 
you know, so I bought a pair of those pants. But that's kind of exploring this space. I mean, I looked yeah. around. Instead of just saying, I'm going to start wearing random stuff until I look like mm. a business school professor, you know, you really sort of start looking at how people dress, right? Or look at what, you know, you know, look at what glasses, um, you know, people have. And then, and then once you've sort of decided this is kind of your look or this is what you're doing, then you exploit it, right? Mm. Podcast, I'm sure you've had all sorts of different guests on. And then you're like, okay. At first, you might be thinking, okay, I want people who have lots of followers. I want people who do this. And then you start realizing, like, well, the ones that, like, I really like or the ones that are sort of drawing more viewers are people who are coming from, you know, this category. So you might find that you're really great at interviewing older women or something, right? <laughs> who've been in, you know, just who've been successful. Yeah, in weren't, yeah. And all of a sudden, that becomes your thing, right? Mm. Tried all sorts of guests, and all of a sudden, like, bam, 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 you know, you get, like, three in a row in this area and you get sort of like, I'm really good at this. This is an underserved, you know, Market, yeah. then you start exploiting the, you know, heck out of that. And then, and the, I think the real challenge is, you know, to continue balance between those two things, right? How do you constantly balance exploration? Mm. Exploit? Otherwise you're eating tacos every night or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's also such an, an important topic to understand because um, you can also use it for so, so many instances. Because, for instance, some people are struggling um, in their relationship. And instead of like uh, struggling with their relationship, they probably should um, uh, look for another relationship where they can exploit it. They have a good time and the same goes with your friends so um if you're struggling with your friends you have a bad time with your friends you are around toxic people you should probably exploit 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 and um uh, what, what was it uh, ex explore. Uh, I explore 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 and right. then exploit yeah right yeah. and and the same goes with businesses so for instance so so many people who got an entrepreneurship i see them struggling and struggling all the time with an idea that probably is not not very good at all so um instead of like exploiting it all the time when it's clearly not working they should probably be ex exploring all the time and search for something that does actually work so uh, i think it's a very very important topic to understand you know, that's so a, that's an amazing point you know, i was just talking to this guy ned stabler who's uh works at wayne state university in detroit which is a big mm. public school in detroit and he helps with their sort of entrepreneurship group And he said one of the best things they do is bring in all these people who've got these amazing ideas to transform Detroit and say, bad idea. Think of how much, you know, so suppose you've got, you know, bring in 500 people who have 500 ideas. Mm. Okay, maybe 150 of those are good. 350 of those are bad, right? No, just that there's no market for it, right? Mm. Like you might say, you know, I'm going to sell shoelaces that just do this. Then you realize, look, no, the whole shoelace market. I mean, you may like shoelaces, but shoelaces are not a thing, right? You know, just how yeah. hard it would be to get, or, you know, someone's going to do bike repair. And you say, look, there's only 700 bikes, you know, within five square miles or something. Um, and so just basic sort of, um, you know, business acumen, like what's the size of the market? What's the potential revenue? What's the potential mm -hmm. profits? And if you can prevent 350 people from like, spending their life savings and spending two years, you know, doing something where they can't make money, you've done an amazing thing, right? And that's the yeah, sort of Yeah, very like, amazing. And so, so many people get into business and the total addressable uh, market size is like probably nothing. And right. they are working, 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 working all the time and they get So uh, it's a huge time suck and a huge trap. So Right. No, and, and then And there could be things like where you're in something and, you know, somebody's going to win here. There's a chance this is going to take off. And then you want to ask questions like, 
am I going to learn something in here? Even if it doesn't work, you know, if there, there could still be a chance, but am I going to learn something while doing this that means that like, hey, okay, it didn't work, but I'm coming out of this, you know, yeah. with like it's a huge skills, presentation skills, statesmanship yeah. skills or something like that. Yeah. And the presentation skills, I mean, that's like, like, you know, you doing a podcast like this or me doing a podcast like this, you just, you learn a lot of stuff. Like, for example, I did this course. There's this company called the um, the Great Courses. They used to be called the Great Professors on Tape. Mm-hmm. And then they changed, I joked that, that I did one and then they changed the name to the Great Courses. But the, um, but they take you, right? So what they do is they go around college campuses mm. and they look professors who aren't necessarily great teachers, but people who look good, who they think look good on tape, like really beautiful people like me, yeah. right? So they, you know, people, look, <laughs> people who look like professors, they don't want, they don't like, like oh, you look like a professor. No, so they want a mix of people and a mix of topics and stuff. So then you go in and you do like a test video, right? And then if you do well enough, you get to do a course. And so like I did my test video and they're like, Scott, there's just one thing, just one thing. And otherwise you're perfect. And I'm like, what is it? And they said, you rub your head a lot. And I'm like, what? They said, yeah, whenever you're like trying to look smart, you rub your head. <laughs> Let's think about this. And it doesn't look good. And I'm like, really? And so then they showed me a video of myself at like 10 times normal speed, right? You know, when you speed up the video. And I'm like, like washing my head. So I have, I have not touched my head since then. You know? <laughs> I'm like, like, dude. And so then, like, you know, I'm doing this. And then, um, you know, so I tape one lecture. I tape another lecture. And then they're like, one thing, one thing. And I'm like, what? And they, and they correct something else I was doing about, like, not pausing correctly. Mm. Like, say, great, you've solved it. Here's another thing. And finally, I'm like, wait a minute. How long is my list? Like, you know, how long is my list of things that yeah. I can improve? They're like, they went full Jack Nicholson on me. They're like, you can't handle the list. <laughs> I'm like, what? They said, no, no. We used to give people the full list, and yeah. it just psychologically breaks them down. Right? You know, mm-hmm. No, because here's a list of 50 things, because you can't fix 50 things, yeah. right? But, like, you can fix one thing occasionally. So one of the things that, like, you know, when you do these things, it's not just a matter of this is kind of, you know, Erickson's 10,000-hour thing, but it's more the case, like, you need to be doing these and also be getting feedback. You know, so you need people saying, oh, I was watching your... By the way, Scott, I'm so glad that you're addressing this because I think the 10,000-hour rule is bullshit. Like, if you are doing the same thing all the time, you will not be a grandmaster at something. And right. there's, like, certain tasks of it. Um, is doing one thing like for the first time and is brilliant at it and another guy is doing the same thing for 5,000 hours and is terrible at it like right. uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I'm not a big fan of it and a lot of very successful people are very very big defenders of the 10,000 hour rule so yeah no I think you've got I mean I agree with you like you you've got to have natural talent right I mean you can yeah like this is a thing in the United States. I don't know if it's this way in Germany, but like people really like they want their children to be like amazing at music. Yeah, the same as Germany. I think it's everywhere. So yeah, I know. And it's like you look and you think, you know, you're like, you know, if you meet someone who's, you know, you know, two meter, you know, well over two meters tall. And they say, like, you know, my daughter wants to play basketball. I'm like, that's a good idea. Yeah. Right. You know. But if you're five four, then uh... yeah, no, <laughs> right, right, no, it's exactly uh, no, and so the um, but it's also like it's like you know my younger son is almost two meters tall, but he just didn't two meters. That's very tall. Yeah, he's close to that. He's like six four here, but he's but he's you know, and he likes playing basketball, but he didn't have that kind of like competitive fire, you know, yeah. aggressiveness that you really sort of 
you know, he's a, he's just too sweet. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah. Um, and, and that's great. Right. And so you don't, you can't force it. Mm. The, uh, but no, you're right. I think that it's, it's, it's weird combination of, in fact, it was, I don't know if you follow basketball, Andrew Wiggins, who plays for the Minnesota Timberwolves, who was the number one pick in the draft. He's Canadian guy. And, you know, and he's been in the league five years and he's a really good player, but I guess you just get the sense that like, he just doesn't want to practice that hard. You know what I mean? He's just kind of, <laughs> yeah. doesn't, yeah. he's not like, I mean, LeBron spends a million dollars a year on his like workout routine or some crazy thing like that. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> rightly. I mean, <laughs> there's people that just really, 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 you know, and it's not, and it's not just the time they're putting in. It's that, that yeah. they're super dedicated with coaches working really, really hard. Right. That yeah. it's, uh, and yeah. I think, and I think um, the ten thousand hour rule is because um, people like it. They they think that if they're putting in the time, they will get there. But I think it's a false promise. Like um, if you're putting in ten thousand hours and you don't have the the natural gift or the natural talent for it, you won't be a grandmaster. Not not everybody can the can be like Elon Musk. Like um, I think yeah. uh, people people love the idea, but I think it's a fairy tale. So yeah, and this is I mean you're raising I think a really good point because I think that. You want to, um, and I, this is definitely true in American society that we're one of the things that I, with younger children, I mean, you know, kids in high school, kids in college, is they think they can be Zuckerberg or Musk, or they should, they have to be entrepreneurs, yeah. and that you know, if they haven't made two hundred million dollars, big twenty-seven or something. That, <laughs> you know, when yeah. I was growing up, there weren't. You know, a friend of mine was interviewing for a job to be like the cfo of some startup that had made it you know he was like 52 or something and these people were all 28 and they're like why weren't you and like why didn't you start a company when you graduated from college he's like what company was i going to start like an yeah auto company? like i'm going to start an auto company at age 23 you know, there, there were you couldn't start That's a good company, point. Right? yeah no and so now it's so easy to start a company that i think you have you know a lot of kids um you know, feeling like, oh, my God, I've got to be super successful, as opposed to sort of just saying, not that you should necessarily say, oh, I want this modest life, but it's, but it's supposed to sort of saying, well, you know, I'm going to try some stuff and see what happens and find out what I like and and figure out, you know, find some sense of purpose, you know, in my life. Yeah. You know, it's a, and, and I also think that um, if you don't really want it, like people can talk about the 10,000 hour rule and you need yeah. to work hard and you can put the time in and all, all those different things. But um, if you don't really want it, you, you won't put in the time and the effort and the hours. Like yeah. I think um, people try to re-engineer the whole like success thing by passing habits and all those different things. But I think it's really disingenuous because um, these are just the symptoms of uh, a, a much uh, larger cause. Like for instance, like those people like Mark, my, Michael Jordan, they, their secret of success is that they are really, really passionate about what they are doing. And I think you can't fake it and talk about like the seven successful habits and um, yeah, 10,000 yeah, yeah. hours and all those different things. You won't get there with this, those techniques because Michael Jordan didn't get there with those techniques either. So, yeah, there was a great like Kevin Durant yesterday got at a Twitter store with some people. It was just hilarious where people were saying yeah. like, shouldn't take the mid range shots, you know, like the 15 foot shot in basketball. Because they're lower percentage, and he's like, "Yes, you should." They're like, well, you should, because you're Kevin Durant. Like, people are shocked because they're like, yeah. they'd "Be like, you would be talking with Kevin Durant on Twitter," and they're like, "They're all like," so they start blowing smoke. Like, "Oh my God, you're Kevin Durant. Like, you should, you can take them. Just nobody else can." <laughs> and then he's, he says, "Dude, like the reason I can take them is because I practice them. 
Yeah. He's like, you know, figure this out. You're like, yes, Great if point. nobody practices right. them, then nobody can make them, and then they shouldn't take them. But the thing is, if you <laughs> practice them, like I practice them, then you can make them, then you should take them. He goes, you guys got it all wrong. And it's, and he was basically pushing back against the kind of number jockeys. This is like, mm. this is where, let's go back to kind of where we started, where there's a difference between kind of like game theory and just looking at data. So one of the things that like really interests kind of also worries me is you can sort of scrape data and say oh based on this data this is how the world should work like based on this data you should should work, you know, should work. miles <laughs> right yeah so you look at the data and you say oh you should never take a 15-foot shot because you know you can't make them but it's like okay that doesn't pass a sniff test because these same people are making 23-foot shots mm. so they can clearly make 15-foot shots but game theory would say they're not taking them right now because you know, you make more points if you take the three-point shot. But if everybody's guarding the three-point shot, and this was Durant's point, right? The 15-foot shot's wide open, and that's an easier shot to make. And if you would practice it, you could probably make 70% of those, and then that would suddenly be a better shot. And I think right? it's a great point, yeah. It's a great point. And oh, by the way, he's like the best scorer and like maybe <laughs> maybe the second or third best scorer in the history of the NBA, so you probably should listen to the guy, right? Yeah. Um, no, and so and it's, and it's not like he wrote down a game theory model, but it's because he's thought about it a lot and he realizes like if you're giving me the 15 foot shot i'll practice the 15 foot shot it does yeah. probably help to seven one and i think um it's the same in the fitness industry for instance people are trying to to look for the optimum and the perfect rep range and the perfect exercise sequence and all those different things right. and um but um if you really understand the topic like every person is different like you can give them a guideline but it right. probably isn't the optimum for them so no, um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but in America, it's kind of like what we want is I want to be able to like eat something to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole industry about eat this and lose weight. And also, like I want to like work out four minutes a day and be yeah. super fit, right. So, so it's just like that's Give the, me the pill. Yeah. yeah. You know, I just want to like kind of like you know do this little tiny thing really intensively yeah. for four minutes before I shower, and then I'm going to eat this giant protein fruit. <laughs> Kale shake, and I'm going to lose a ton of weight. I mean, this is like the craziest thing, right? No, so no, but it's like it's at some point, like the the <laughs> these industries that build up around this are crazy. But one thing that, that I have learned though in this space that's mm. cool is exercise is so social, right? You know, like mm. these Peloton classes, these you know, this company just opened in Ann Arbor called Row Fit, where you just sit there and like you know endure pain with other people rowing really hard you know in a rowing machine like um, like, like like at the rowing machine or yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. it's just Got like it. the peloton class is different but, yeah. but no and, and like all this pilates stuff and you know mm -hmm. i mean so just this, this sort of social um you know sort of pressure or just sort of desire to sort of make sure you show up every week mm -hmm. and doing it with other people and seeing everybody else struggling through it um you know, it turns out to matter a lot, right? That, and you know, I think it's a great trend, trend nowadays. Like so, so many people are like eating, eating their greens and making yeah. sure like, that they're trying to be healthy. And so, so many people are now working out. I think it's great that so, so many people get into fitness or Pilates or yoga and all those different things. So, yeah, it's just that, you know, like the running thing as well. Like we have all these giant yeah. runs, like, a, like a, we have a big holiday coming up Thanksgiving you know, where everybody just sits around and eats for the entire day. And so in the, the city I live in, Ann Arbor, that morning we have a, a huge run. You know, it's like mm. a, I think it's like a 5K. The marathon? Ah, oh, okay. No, just a 5K, right? So, like, so almost like thousands of people get up and run in the morning, which is great to offset a little bit of like all the pie we're going to eat later in the day. But, uh, <laughs> no, but it's really cool because if you'd have said to me, 
like 30 years ago, <laughs> like, you know, 10 percent of the people in my city would get up and run and in the cold, you know, yeah, it's a cool thing. No, it's a cool thing. Right. But it's clearly social. Like we wouldn't all go do it individually. We wouldn't mm. all like individually. I promise I'm going to run in the morning and be like just kind of waving. So the fact that it's all organized is great. Yeah. So tell me about your your viewers. Where are you trying to push it? Like what sort of things do you think really interest them? <laughs> so so um I'm, I I have like guests. It's kind of like the Joe Rogan podcast. Like I have guests from all different industries. So yeah. um, we are exploring so so many different things. So I had like mostly entrepreneurs on the podcast. Yeah. But um yeah I'm I'm talking about like everything and anything so uh, yeah. yeah what what are okay. the things that fascinate you the most nowadays so well so one of the things yeah that um some there's um uh it's funny it's like a company I'm working for that's a startup but it's a startup about startups called CrowdSmart which sort of um based in uh, Silicon Valley where we help like so entrepreneurs like you have an idea and then mm -hmm. you like sort of like you get a startup and you have a um you make sort of like a, a video of what you're doing and you sort of make this pitch. And then what we do is we bring in like crowds of experts and we sort of assign them and they sort of then evaluate your company on, you know, the, the basic sort of, you know, how's management, what's the market look like? We're just what we were talking about before. Like, are you, you know, is there a market for this? And then um, the people who evaluate can then invest in the companies, but also so does um, CrowdSmart itself. Mm. And so far our records like, too good to be sustained. It's sort of like someone who in their first seven games has scored four goals a game in soccer. So, you know, something, <laughs> I mean, but so far it's working really well, but what's really cool about it is it's gotten, um, it's really democrat. We're trying to democratize the VC space in the sense that like, there's a lot of evidence that once you actually have, you know, sort of formal procedures and criteria for evaluating a lot of the sort of like gender bias, race bias, cultural bias mm. goes away because you're not now in you know, now what I'm doing is I'm looking at like 20 startups all in the same format and it allows me to sort of, you know, oh yeah, this one does have a better marketing plan or this market seems better or this leadership, you know, this leadership team seems Very better. Very data-driven. Yeah, yeah data-driven and also then, and also you can have, um, we allow the, you know, the founders or the people running the startup to, to give feedback. You know, people say, boy, we really don't like this, you know, how you're handling your, you know, you know, maybe your accounting system or where you, you know, what you, where your manufacturing, your supply chain looks too fragile or something like that. And, um, mm -hmm. the, uh, and allows there to be dialogue between the two. And the idea is to sort of like, on the one hand, do what we talked about before, you know, possibly have people be aware, like, holy cow, these people don't like what we're doing. Let's, no, that, that's important, right? Like, yeah. how, so to give people just independent feedback. So one of the things I'm super interested in, which I'm teaching a class on at the Ross School of Business at Michigan in the winter is, on sort of on what we call collective intelligence. Like how is it that you have, you know, groups of people be smarter than individuals? So whether you're trying By to By the way, sorry to interrupt, but uh, do you know Howard Bloom? Yeah. He, he, he wrote on the topping. I've read one of yeah. his books like a, a couple yeah. of months ago. Like uh, what, what was it called? Like also like global brain or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he seems to be a very bright guy, like very intelligent guy. Yeah, no, there's a, there's also a wonderful book by um, Tom Malone at MIT called Superminds, mm -hmm. which is a great book in this space. Um, Jim Sirwicky has a book called The Wisdom of Crowds, you know, which is Yeah, great. The Wisdom of Crowds is, I yeah. think, a classic, like mo yeah. a lot of people know about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, um, 
you know, so there's the question of like, you know, and, and I, that's also book the madness of crowds, which yeah, is yeah, also- yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, and so that's so one of the things that I um you know trying I mean you've just nailed it exactly. So this this book I wrote last year, this model thinker, one of the things I talk about in there is that we have a lot of sort of like proverbs or sayings that we say. And there's something called like that I call the that's called the opposite proverb problem. So I can say two heads are better than one, which is like the wisdom of crowds. Right. I can also say too many cooks spoil the broth. I can say the wisdom of crowds. I can say the madness of crowds. I can say a stiction time saves nine. Right. You know, so prepare. Or I can say um, he who hesitates is lost. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for every famous saying, there's an opposite saying. Yeah. And so the thing is, so you can't run a business, you can't run your life by these things. Like I always say, you know, early bird right. gets the worm. Somebody else can say, get a good night's sleep, right? So, <laughs> and so, and so what, what I try and teach then in my, like in some sense, the core reason for the modeling classes, what, what science does is helps us understand when is each true, right? When it, do too many cooks throw the broth? And when are two heads better than one? And, and then when you unpack it, you realize, ooh, the metaphor is actually really apt. So the reason we say too many cooks spoil the broth is cooking is irreversible. So like if I'm, so we had some people coming out for dinner and I was making, um, you know, my wife said, why don't you make this uh, vegetarian Indian dish thing? So I'm making it and it was kind of lame, right? <laughs> and so I added, no, it just wasn't, it just didn't have much flavor. Yeah. So I added a bunch of chicken stock, right? And then it tasted a lot better. And she's like, oh, the reason I said vegetarian is they're vegetarian. And I'm like, you know, there's no anti-chicken stock at that point. Mm, like I can't take yeah. the chicken stock out. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so if you've got an irreversible process, mm-hmm. you need a single plan. That's mm-hmm. why too many cooks spoil the broth. You've never heard anybody say too many engineers spoil the bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. because, you know, you want a lot of engineers looking at a bridge. Right. Or too many intelligence analysts spoil the battle plan. No, that's actually not true. You know, too, yeah. you know. So in some things, so if you can sit back and really you're planning, you're in the planning stages, two heads are better than one. When you're actually in the operational phase, no, you need a single leader. And there's a great book called Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal, who is a U.S. sergeant. And he says, you know, when you're in battle, you know, when you're or you're like implementing a plan, you've got to be following chain of command. You know, mm. too many generals, too many cooks spell the breath. You've got to be in that mindset. Like we are, even if it's wrong, we're following this person. Um, but when it's over, when you're planning, you, you know, you need everybody to sort of share. And so one of the great innovations he had, which is just really cool, is after they would have some engagement, you know, yeah. whether it was military or not, they would then come back and they would take off their uniforms, not entirely, but, you know, just there at the top. <laughs> it wasn't like, let's get naked with our team, but like, take off the top. <laughs> and then they would... So that so I don't you know, so you don't see that I don't see that you've got three stars and I've only got one star. I don't see yeah. your, you know, so I guess we're just all there in white t-shirts and we go in this tent as equals mm. and we share how we really feel. That's the two heads are better than one. And then we're like, okay, we've talked this through. Now you're my boss again. Mm. Right. Okay. So we've talked it through. I've gotten to share what I feel. We've had two heads are better than one, right? But now we're back to work, boys and girls, and we're gonna I'm going to be right in line behind you. No, and so it's, and this it's is a the fascinating key. topic. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the key. So, but in general, I think this is the key. Like, you know, when you think about whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're just sort of constructing your own life, whether you're working in the policy space, there's lots of ideas, and those ideas contradict each other, right? Yeah. 
know, and so all the time, all the time. And so what so this combination of like logic plus data helps us understand, you know, when when do we do what? Right. And those things may change. I mean, if you look at this is why I find the business world. So, you know, there's a notion um, from statistics called stationarity, which means that, like, you know, everything's exactly the same as it was before. And something can be non-stationary if it's very different than it was before. And so, like, you can get a book like um, there's like a famous business book, Good to Great, which identified these are the 10 characteristics of great businesses. And then they even identified like 14 businesses that were really doing these 10 things. Right. Or 14 things. Well, then you look forward a decade and those businesses sucked. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and it, it's not that they stopped doing what they do, mm-hmm. were doing. It's that the world changed. You know, and this, the, unfortunately for David, you know, the guy who wrote the book, the um, he wrote it at a time when we moved from kind of like, you know, it was all about sort of production and logistics to like Internet innovation. And so the people who are really good at production and logistics were like, you know, narrowly <laughs> the explore, exploit thing. Yeah. Right? They were just exploit, 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 you know. To some extent, and it was things like rinse your cottage cheese, right? People on the bus, good management. You know, and it wasn't like get a bunch of really smart people in the world and figure room and figure out something really amazing to do. Right. And so mm. they got their lunch handed to them by disruptive technologies because that wasn't right. And it's not surprising. And all of a sudden, Clayton Christensen, who was about, you know, disruption becomes this big, you know, management guru. But like now, but, you know, 10 years from now, that could be totally wrong because the world yeah. keeps changing. And so. The you Great know point, active, right. sort of explore exploit thing right you've got to be exploring and exploiting in this world of ideas as well yeah and it's so important because um so so many people are like only working all the time and always exploiting but they are not exploit uh, exploring they are exploiting but not exploring like all the time and exploring is so so important because like for instance we're working so much and uh, a lot of time on our businesses we're spending so so much time in relationships and we're spending so so much time in the cities we're living in so we should really make sure that we are living in the right place that we're spending the, t- the time with the right people and that we're working on the right Thing. So um, I think it's like very, very important uh, s- uh, subject. And to, to, to your other point, um, I think a, a, a big problem in our society is that people want those hard and fast rules and they don't understand that business is also an art form and salesmanship right. is an art form and entrepreneurship is an art form. You can't right. give people like a, a hundred step checklist and you build a hundred million company. It doesn't work right. like that. And um, yeah, like I always like to say like, Like uh, society is like an, an insurance business. They they want to create rules, and then there are exception for the rules. Like right. they say you have to do this, but um, like for instance, uh, everybody says like practice makes perfect. But um, there are so so many people who are great at whatever they are doing, and they are never practicing. So um, right. what is it now? <laughs> practice no, makes right. perfect, or? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like so, one thing I learned from. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the checklisting thing, right? Because one thing I learned from people who work in hospitals is that they sort of do this what I call complexity triage. You know, so somebody comes in, and if you've like twisted your ankle, or you know, you've blown out your knee, they sort of say, okay, we've seen this 400 times before. And we have a checklist for that. And right? I think there's a time and place for a checklist. That's right. That's right. I, I've that's talked it. to a pilot, so you better have your checklist, man. So. Right. But then if you come in and you've got something really weird going on, <laughs> there's no checklist, right? Mm. And so I think there's this – and then you've got to like – then you need the collective wisdom. You need the wisdom of crowds. You need like diverse group of people in the room, all that sort of stuff. Right? And so I think it's, yeah. it's really um, – it's fun to think about, okay – 
I can just go in checklist mode here, yeah. right? And I can just go in. But you're, the point you raised about like people having time to think. I was meeting with um, a bunch of a bunch of people at a, like a major one of the world's largest corporations last week. You know, people who do like kind of problem solving and prediction for a living. Mm. And I'm like, how much time do you spend like answering emails a day? And it's like, you know, yeah. everybody's like three to four hours. I'm like, how much time do you spend thinking a day? And I was like, yeah. I love, how I much space, space do you have to think? Yeah. So important. Do you have like an hour, like, and you and they have none. And you think that you would say, and it's weird because the, the email, you feel like you have to answer it. And then it cuts into your thinking time as opposed to sort of saying, no matter what, you know, there's an hour block here where I just think, you know, about anything. I read something, do whatever, like, you know, try and but but the sort of like day to day, you know, business stuff creeps in. And I think that's I think that's dangerous. And you, you meet people who like been wildly successful. And one of the things you do find is that they are they constantly learn. Right. They're constantly reading. They're constantly, you know, discovering new things. Um, and one of the things I was surprised by when I, you know, Going back to talking about the the teaching company, those great professors on tape yeah. things. So they that company started like in the 80s, I guess, and like you would get them on giant VCR things, right? And they're you know they couldn't tell me who it was, but their client base, I guess, consists of a lot of you know really well known you know CEOs and people who became CEOs because these people would get like get up in the morning and they would like be on like a little treadmill and they would watch educational videos. And you're thinking, really, like you know a CEO of a company. <laughs> It's like that's how you become a CEO of a company is you you know you're watching educational videos. Mm. I mean these are these aren't like you know schoolhouse rock. I mean these are like really intelligent. You know these are some of the world's top professors talking about things like you know you know what is the future of computing or you know how does what is international relations how does international relations work or what is organic chemistry. You know they're just um, and you know so if you go to work for like you know suppose you were an undergrad engineering major and then you. Um, you know, get an MBA and then you go work for someplace like Abbott or Pfizer, one of these big healthcare companies. And you're like, you know, I don't know anything about biochemistry. Right. Yeah. And I want to be CEO of a healthcare company. And, and, you, and you sort of like get the disconnect and think, you know what, I can watch a college course on biochemistry. I can watch three of them. And then I can, yeah. like, it's not like I'm going to then be like advancing the science, but I'm not going to be like, which one's meiosis, which one's mitosis. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm actually going to, I'm going to know the stuff. Right? You and get a pretty that, broad understanding of the topic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's just so crucial. In this, you know, mm. just generally, you know, being being a continuous learner in spaces that you need to learn. And I think it's also important, like you've mentioned, to have time to think and to disconnect. For instance, like everybody is like online all the time and always busy, and uh, everybody is like listening to podcasts and educational videos like all the time. But um, I think you also need, like you've mentioned, you also need to disconnect because um, right. like you need time to think, to to explore and um, think about different approaches to, uh, for your business or your life in general. So uh, I think it's a very, very undervalued asset because like the loudspeakers um, at the moment in society says like you always should be busy, like always, yeah. always, you should always be working on something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, like, the m most intelligent people I know and that are the most successful, they also tend to uh, use very little social media, if at all, and they try to disconnect um, as often as possible, like, keep meetings short, and uh, their answers on email, it's very short and decisive, right. and, um, yeah, they are very ruthless about their time, so. 
Yeah, I've started like writing. Um, a friend of mine taught me to write these emails where you sort of say, you know, action items in bold, right? So you know, because you know, because you have to sort of like if you're if you're writing to someone in some sense cold, and you think like like when you wrote me, like you could be, yeah. like, hi, my name is you know Hardy da 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 da, and you have all this stuff, but. But he does this thing at Tepper's actually, and it would just be like in the it's middle a of the good message. Idea. It's a good idea. So in the middle of the message, in bold print, would be like, Will you be on my podcast? Right? <laughs> yeah. No, and then it's just like, you know, and oftentimes he makes that a link as well. So you can just click on it and say, like, Yes, right? Um, <laughs> no, because it's it's just so much better because, like, you pull up an email and it's like, like when you're introducing yourself to me, you can't just say, My name's Hardy, be in my podcast. You've got to give some context and that yeah, sort of stuff. Sure. The thing is, but I'm like rolling through 200 emails. I'm like, oh, God, you know, what does this person want? What is it? You know, and then, it, but if I just see, oh, podcast, I can say yes or no, then look at the podcast. And then I can maybe go back and read the, the email. But sometimes I'll say to people, like, I'll say, I have a simple, I'll say, this email contains an ask preceded by background, right? Um, and then there's the perfunctory nice stuff I'll say at the end. <laughs> you know, and, I'll, and I'll literally have like, you know, background and I'll say, you know, I'm doing this, da, da, da. Here's the ask, you know, here's what I'd like you to do. And then it, it just, and it's just kind of fun to be like perfunctory, you know, like nice things to say at the end. You know, just say things like, yeah. always been a big fan of what you do and this is great. And here's where I think this would, um, you know, because I had a, a friend who wrote this amazing book and I was writing to her saying, I think that it'd be nice to take those ideas and move them into a different domain. Right. And so mm -hmm. in, the, in sort of stuff at the bottom, you know, at the end of the email, I was like, you know, this is why I think this is, you know, so important, but you know, and she doesn't, you can think, why did I include that? She doesn't need to read it. But the thing is people need to read things where people say, I think what you do is super cool. Right. Mm -hmm. And great. And the, and the, but the thing is, but you don't know, like, I don't know if that person's getting, that person could be getting 500 emails a day that say that, like, Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and then they, don't, they, don't need, they don't need it, right? Yeah, yeah. Done. You know, you may have, she may have spent three years writing a book and have got no emails where people say, "I think what you're doing is." And amazing. she will be so so happy, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but so the thing is, but but like, so if in the email, that's just a separate part. Like, here's why I think you're so amazing. They can read it or not, right? And um, and I think it's also just uh, about being considerate. So if you are considerate and 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 if you know the person is very busy, has a lot of employees, or has it like a, a very very busy lifestyle, like you shouldn't probably write like long-winded nonsense emails with ten paragraphs. Like this person right. will just delete it. But if you know that somebody like uh, is sitting on, on the beach all the time and is smoking weed, then yeah, you could probably write a longer email, but I was in a thing. <laughs> I was in a thing like a few months ago. Like the CEO of the company was a former member of the cabinet of the United States. So yeah, a pretty. I wouldn't. Very important person. And he's like, we're having a conversation like this. He goes, "This is just so much fun." He goes, "You know, if you weren't so busy, we should like hang out." Yeah. And I'm like, if I weren't so busy. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. There you go. Yeah. Like you're running a huge corporation. If I weren't so busy, you know. But, but it was just kind of like. Um, but it's a nice gesture. I, I it guess. was a nice gesture. That was a very nice gesture. <laughs> but uh, no, so it's one of those things where I think it is. We're all we're all so busy in finding those these spaces. Um, I should. I actually have a me uh, meeting. I got to run to. Yeah, we, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the end, I always ask five questions. Right, so right, right. Um, yeah. All right. So, um, Scott, could you please, um, on all those different things that we've talked about today, like what would you tell our listeners at this point in our conversations? 
like um, what would be your best advice on game theory and signaling and all those different things so anything you want to highlight or mention at this point in our conversation so so i think that you know two things one is you know someone who teaches you know spent you know 30 years teaching young people to try to be successful i think one is even if you you're kind of like scared of data and scared of math getting a basic understanding of you know how this you know what's going on in this sort of big data revolution and how people are using the data and what are the possibilities and limits is incredibly important right mm. and as is understanding some even just sort of like you know basic models like what is a linear model what are the restrictions on those models it's really really important because the world is going to be this you know it's not like we're moving towards quantitative people doing everything it's going to be this blend of quantitative and qualitative people but there's wonderful work by this guy ron burt from chicago where if you can't translate between those two just a little bit like if every time the quantitative people are talking you're just like i have no idea what they're saying you're just missing out on so much and the same goes the other way like if you know if you're purely quantitative and you just know the numbers it's incredibly important that you know you listen to the people who aren't quantitative but i actually ironically even though the I think the quantitative people tend to be more open-minded than the qualitative. You know, you never hear you never hear a quantitative person say, "Sorry, dude, I don't do compound words. Right. I don't do I don't do complex sentences." Right? I mean, it, there's an effort to try and understand those things, but I think it's it's really you're limiting your possibilities if you don't at least make an effort for sort of a basic grounding in these things. And there's lots of places where you can pick that up. I think the other thing is again, you know, just we talked about this before is you know just continuing to learn right just continuing to be um you know open to new ideas new thoughts new ways in which the world works and then the third thing is is really separate purpose from achievement i mean all you can do is you know prepare to the extent you're sort of physiologically you know cognitively and psychologically able to do the best you can we talked about this before like maybe you're kevin durant maybe you're us right <laughs> you know, do what you can and then and recognize if you have a strong sense of purpose and you've prepared the best you can and you've worked as hard as you could and, you've, you know, you've done what you can, maybe you end up Zuckerberg, maybe you don't. I mean, that that's in some sense kind of irrelevant. And it's also there's a huge luck component to that. Right. I mean, so success, a friend of mine, Michael Mobison, wrote this book called The Success Equation, where he said, look, success is like kind of like it's a combination of ability and luck. And all you can do is sort of, you know, build your abilities to the best you can and the luck will go your way and it won't go or maybe it doesn't go your way. You can't worry about that. Focus on the purpose and the achievement will be what the achievement is to some extent. Right. Mm. Um, and I think in evaluating others, we have to keep that in mind as well. Like we can't be like, wow, here's this person, you know, her podcast has 40 million followers, you know, I just say, yeah, OK, good on her. Right. But it doesn't mean that, you know, yeah. she's amazing. Yeah. So um, could you please tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social webs and find you and so on and so forth? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm on. I mean, I'm on Twitter as Scotty Page. I mean, I don't tweet that much. I mean, typically I tweet more on, um, you know, uh, you know, some policy stuff, some modeling stuff, some complexity stuff, some diversity stuff, and then uh, you know, my, uh, you know, my my books like The Model Thinker, The Difference, which is a book about diversity, um, are easily accessed. There's a lot. You know, there's a number of like really short videos. Like I did one for LinkedIn and things like that. If you look mm -hmm. under Scotty Page Diversity Video. There's a lot of like really nice, you know, professionally produced you know, makeup on and everything. You know, five, <laughs> five videos. No, actually, it's always right here. It's to get rid of the shiny forehead. Uh, <laughs> God, I've got like, a, you know, so I have an, a lot of, I think, hopefully really productive, useful five minute videos out there about the vibe diversity. So that's yeah. great. 
Got it. So um, the first out of the five question is, Scott, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? That's a good question. So I would guess, um, you know, there's a just a standard book of Emerson's essays, right? Mm. But on, you know, nature and self-reliance and those sort of things, you know, the famous quotes like a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of simple minds, that sort of thing. Um, I think that had a huge effect on me. I think, um, ironically, this isn't even a book so much. You know, the, there's a when I was an undergrad, there's a uh, I took a poetry class and we had this Norton anthology of poetry, which is like one of these like 1,200. You know, it's like kind of got like poems from all eras. And I had just some amazing poetry professor, and like he brought it. Like Seamus Heaney came in, and you know, the famous Irish poet. Nobel Prize winner came in and like visited our class. This was before he was Seamus Heaney, right? I mean, he was obviously still Seamus Heaney, but he wasn't the Seamus Heaney. And just this idea that um, there were sort of common feelings about life and its preciousness and how you spend your time and and that it's written in very different forms over hundreds of years. Um, you know, so that's a book that is dog-eared on the, you know, next to my bed on a shelf that, you know, just occasionally you pick up and you, okay, and, you know, read something short from it. And it's just had a, it's always been like a touchstone to me. And then I think the third book I would guess would be Ken Arrow wrote this book called Social Choice and Individual Values, where he, which is really sort of his dissertation, part of his dissertation. Ken was a Nobel Prize winner in economics and a friend who recently passed away at like age, and he was working up until the end, till like age 95. But in this book, he basically says, if you Suppose everybody has preferences over things like, you know, I want, you know, spending on schools or this sort of thing. And then you think, OK, what what are society's preferences? So everybody's mm -hmm. got kind of ordering of all the things he wants. What he shows in this book is that that's actually impossible. So there's this famous arrow impossibility theorem that if each person has preferences and I want it to be the case that there's some from these individual preferences, some sort of social preference that's that satisfies a bunch of basic properties. Like if everybody prefers A to B, society prefers A to B, and then we can compare everything. He shows that like. Under really mild conditions, that's impossible. And what was so powerful about that book to me is that um, it showed the power of mathematics to help us understand social phenomena that for hundreds of years, actually thousands of years, philosophers have been talking about what is the general will, what is the will of all, using really deep logic through language, but not through mathematics. And then when he went out of mathematically, he said, you know, it's a fool's game. Mm. <laughs> there is no, I mean, we, we could redefine what the general will is, but there is no general will in the term of a general preference ordering. It's impossible to get. So you end up with these sort of rock, paper, scissors things. Whenever you get, if you have enough diversity in the room, you're going to get, you know, I don't know if you play this game, but, you know, rock smashes scissors, scissors cut paper, paper covers rock. You're going to get these cycles. And so what he showed is these cycles are inevitable. And so it's just this. And the other thing about this book that's so spectacular is it's short very clearly written there was I mean, a lot of academics write to obfuscate you know like look how smart i am and <laughs> no and he wrote um with clarity so it's a it's a spectacular book yeah. got it so um the second question is um what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most oh boy this is a tough one i mean i think that it's it's really hard to separate this out because you know i I see movies as kind of like a social fun. Like people ask this question and people always say, Oh, I, I like this movie for this reason. And I think, you know, for me having these, you know, we just sent my second son, one son is a sophomore in college, one is a freshman in college. And so, you know, now we know they're no longer here. I've got this 12 feet, 350 pounds of man missing <laughs> from my house. 
And so the movies that I like best have been like the movies that I've gone to see with them. Right. Mm. So they're like, I mean, honestly, I would like name Avenger movies and Harry Potter movies in that category, because if you said to me, like, sit back on your life and say, when did you, you know, enter or leave a movie theater? Um, and was it just a great experience that it was like, and it was, you know, with my boys going to see, you know, what was the last Avenger movie with my younger son? That was just awesome. You know, <laughs> um, and the movie, and like, there's so much action there. I like had to take a shower when it was over, but it was, but it was still just the case that like, you know, this, um, like, you know, like in, when we, were in, we spent a year on sabbatical in France and there was a movie about in French about this great Pyrenees, this white, this became with a Belle and Sebastian, right. Which is about this, this, stray great Pyrenees that gets found and then is and ends up like, you know, helping this small boy. And like we had rescued a great Pyrenees. Right. And I have, you know, now on our second great Pyrenees and I have these boys. And so is that a great movie? No, no. <laughs> but the thing is like seeing that movie in France, living in this small town in France with my boys, is that like the best movie experience I've ever had yet? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So uh, the third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Oh, there's a tie here. So, well, so my wife bought me like 20 years ago, a rowing machine for the basement. And mm. when you're raising two boys with a lot of, you know, take a lot of energy, and you're cooking all these meals, trying to get a career going. My, my wife was, you know, trying to get tenure. It's very hard to stay fit. Right. And I felt like I was slipping a little bit like at age 40. And so she bought me one of those rowing machines. And in 20 minutes, you can kick your butt. Right. I mean, you can really, yeah. you, can, no, you can really. And so that that machine has kept me in shape. Right. Cool. That machine has. Um, and now my older, both my sons end up rowing in high school. My older son rows in college. So that's great. And the other one is we bought a um, home espresso machine. Right. Not a super expensive one. Right. But. And that was a car. It's, it's just a Breville espresso machine for coffee. Right. Where you, uh, you can see. And what's great about that is one is it saved us a ton of money. Right. Because coffee is expensive. But the more important thing is that like every morning I like, you know, make my wife a latte. You know, so I grind the beans. I press the thing in. I steam the milk. I pour it in. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we now know is having these moments of gratitude is so important. And so that four minutes, you know, where I make her a latte and I still can't make those designs. God, this is the 10,000 hour thing. I made like 50,000. I still can't make anything. Uh, they don't have the motor control. And it's funny because my younger son's an artist. He's got, you know, way off the charts, fine motor control. And I'm like, Ugh. but, uh, you know, but to be able to take five minutes every morning and just remind myself yeah. how much I love my wife and how fortunate, you know, my sons and I are to have her in my life. Our lives, that's, like that it's weird but that product has made it you know if it were in this one of those like nespresso things i put it in there's the coffee yeah. i wouldn't get that moment, right and so it's weird the the physicality of making the coffee gives me that moment which is super cool it's a gift right every day yeah. got it so uh the fourth question is um <laughs> <These are harder. laughs> so uh What are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And some guests shared something deeply personal about their career, relationships, 
travel, time, so speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with with our audience today. Yeah, I would say um, that I think over the last you know few years I've come to this in part of because we you know we just we we rescued this other Great Pyrenees, this other dog, and we've had like five dogs and four have been just really malleable. They've sort of been these wonderful sort of creatures. And this this one has got a lot of issues, right? And try as we might, there's still a lot of issues with this dog in it. And it's enabled me to sort of like just be reminded that people have a nature, right? Just like this dog has a nature. And, and I have a nature. And so some of the things that sometimes I do that um, in – that I wish I didn't do, I've learned to sort of accept, right? You know, so for example, I'm, you know, having not come from a place, you know, not come from a super socially connected, you know, family with lots of power. When people use their power to advance their kids or use their power to sort of like um, do things in their own self-interest, I have a, you know, I may have a weakness in that I, I tend, I do have a weakness in that, you know, I tend to be really critical of that. Right. And, um, to just, to just kind of accept that in myself and also sort of accept that, um, sometimes, um, when we put a stake in the ground, we're right. And sometimes when we put a stake in the ground, we're wrong. And to be willing to, you know, sort of pull the stake out or be willing to, you know, keep the stake in. Right. So one, one place where I've, kept the stake in for a long time was, um, you know, the Bill Clinton, this is a long time ago, the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing, right? So I wasn't very aware of those sort of issues growing up because it wasn't an issue. In fact, men were really sexist where I grew up, right? And women were objectified. But then, you know, going through college at a liberal institution, becoming a professor, you know, where the last thing you would ever do is hit on one of your students, right? So when Clinton did that with Lewinsky, I was furious. I was furious. And I and I've never I put that stake in. I've never let it up. And, and you think about this recent Me Too movement, you think of the tens of thousands of women who are probably harassed because Bill Clinton got away with it because liberal women said, oh, but he's done a lot for women. And I was like, no, he has not. <laughs> like, you know, this I, mean, I, I just absolutely was, whole, you know, I've been holier than thou in this thing for a long time. And I think I was right. I think that, you know, and to the extent that like a lot of my friends are like, don't even bring up Clinton around him. You know, because I'm just like bad person, bad person, horrible for women. Um, but I think there are other things where, you know, you know, you you put the stake in and then, you know, you pull it out. So, for example, like, you know, you know, people I know who, you know, went to work for Trump. Originally, I was like, you know, I think that um, I sort of had different sets of stakes, you know, so somebody who was working for me in the education department, I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. There's other areas where I was like, no, like we still need good people in this area. Um, but then, you know, I've, and I would, would kind of die on that hill a little bit, but then now maybe less so. You know, now I think in light of recent events where you just feel like, you know, he has completely undermined our core institutions, I'm pulling that stake out. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm unwilling to defend people um, in who've, you know, who, who continue to work for him. And so I think that, you know, I, I so I think this realization is you, you've got to take firm positions, but at the same time, you've got to be you've got to revisit them. Right. God. Yeah. And the funny thing is the Clinton one, um, you know, I've revisited a bunch of times, you know, you, start, you know, should I just let it go? 
right? And I haven't let it go. And I feel in, in light of this recent Me Too movement, you know, that we've learned that in the intervening 20 years, a lot of powerful men have continued to do horrible things to women. Um, you know, I'm not, I can't, I'm not laying that all on his feet. But the thing is, but I think the people who said, it's okay, because you're president, that sent a very strong message to powerful men, right? And a lot of women suffered for that. So uh, the last question for today is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, yeah. No, this is this is kind of an easy one. I mean, like, cause I, have two, I have a 20-year-old son and a 19-year-old son. So they're just kind of like, <laughs> no, I think that there are some really basic things like, you know, sleeping well, eating well, getting physical exercise, treating people with kindness, and just having this sort of like awareness that, you know, you need a larger sense of purpose. And if you have those things, you know, you just sort of keep learning stuff is going to, you know, to a large extent, take care of itself a little bit, you know, and, and I think it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, I've got to get this grade, I've got to achieve this thing, I'm going to do this thing. And then as a result, you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, you stop working out, right? And you end up being stressed. And um, it's not good. And I, you know, cause I think at I think, you know, mental health is, you know, is so important. And, you know, we're seeing now that, um, you know, not having friends being, you know, that the culture isn't necessarily conducive, especially in America, that sort of upfront conducive to sort of being mentally healthy. And I think that it's amazing, but I think just basic things like, you know, sleeping, eating, sleeping well, eating well, physical exercise, you know, spending time with friends is so important. The other thing is like, you know, I would tell myself, but you know, I'm a guy, right? Um, don't be stupid. I mean, like, there's a, no, it's true, right? I mean, you're a guy, right? Like you think back like 70, like you know, 20 is a good age to say it, like 16 to 19, man, you do stupid stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, I read this story a couple years ago where this guy, his son was dating the police chief's daughter, right? And for fun on her birthday, they all got those, what do you call them? Balakabas, you know, like the the head, you know, the the hats that have like little eyes in them that are all black, like stock pulls mm, over. Yeah, got it, got it. And they went and they like toilet papered her house, right? Which is a thing that like Americans, you know, you do. To, and, and he's like, okay, so wait a minute, like a whole bunch of you were dressed up in dark clothing with masks over your face <laughs> and surrounding the police chief's house and throwing toilet paper. And he's like, what were you thinking? And the kid was like, uh, we weren't thinking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think as a guy, right. I mean, there's, you know, there's some evidence for this. That's why auto insurance rates are higher for guys. I think it still is the case. Like I think back at myself, you know, I don't think it was probably until I was 27, 28, you know, that I really probably was fully thought through stuff before I did it. Right. And it wouldn't be a bad, it's not a bad, you know, like, I mean, do you get the tattoo? Do you, yeah. you know, <laughs> the fourth shot of tequila you know i think there's just a whole <laughs> set of things where you know asking yourself you know just being self-aware to say that you know i'm 20 now at some point i'm going to be 30 and i would love to first of all be 30 but you know i think there's going to be a bunch of times where i would say did i ask myself is this really freaking stupid i mean you're gonna make mistakes but like don't do really yeah. stupid stuff yeah oh uh scott i wouldn't say that to a 40 year old you know woman or a 50 year old guy. <laughs> guy i think you're still in that like the 
a lot of stupid that still could happen. <laughs> Got it. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for the episode. I think uh, the time just flew by, so I think this is a good sign. So, uh, yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, talk soon. I'm in Berlin, I'll definitely look you up. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.